0: This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines.
1: Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, Managing Editor at Crosscut. And this week, we're talking about failures in leadership. Now, it appears that Donald Trump is in trouble. In the last few months, he's faced crisis after crisis, a pandemic, civil unrest and an economic collapse. And it looks like the choices he's made have turned the electorate against him. So, some portion of the president's base remains enthusiastic. That's abundantly clear. But polling has shown that even his bedrock of support among Republican voters is beginning to erode. Earlier this year, the president was a favorite to win re election. Now he's drawing comparisons to George H.W. Bush, who, you'll remember, was the last president to lose a re election fight. When it comes to the presidency, failure is a very real possibility. And when the electorate decides to kick an incumbent out, or, in the case of President Trump, is seriously considering it, I think it's important to take a look at where it all went wrong. I wonder, is our process for selecting the president insufficient? Are the qualities we respond to in a candidate not the same qualities needed to get the job done? Or is the presidency itself just too difficult for one person to manage? This week, I'm speaking with John Dickerson about his new book, The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency. We discuss what Trump's first term has revealed about the presidency, the attributes Dickerson feels effective presidents share, and whether Trump's opponent, Joe Biden, has what it takes. Then, later, I'll talk with Crosscut's resident historian, Knut Berger, about another fraught leadership position, the Seattle mayorship. Looking forward to next week, we have David Plouffe coming on the show. The former campaign manager and senior advisor for President Barack Obama shares his thoughts on the general election fight. Also, we just confirmed Senator Patty Murray for a future episode. If you have questions for the senator, send them to talks at Crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. I'm speaking now with John Dickerson. John is a journalist with CBS News, where he's a correspondent for 60 Minutes and a fixture of that newsroom's election coverage. Podcast listeners will know him as the host of the Whistle Stop podcast and co-host of the Slate Political Gab Fest. John is also an author. His most recent book is The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency. John, welcome to Crosscut Talks.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: You've been working on this book for a while, but it also feels very much like a book of the moment. Um, you know, Donald Trump looms large here. Uh, so would this book have come out with or without the Trump presidency?
2: Oh, yeah, it would have. I mean, the real place it started was in 2004 after I'd finished doing an interview with George W. Bush. I was in his driveway at um, at his uh, weekend place or vacation place in Crawford, Texas. And he said, you know, if you wanna interview a a candidate and figure out what they would be like as president, you'd have have to find out how they make decisions. And what I got from that interview and that comment was that I started to think about, I mean, that's what the job is as president, making decisions. So how do people make decisions? What puts them in the best possible position to make those decisions? What does it mean to make presidential level decisions? So I started to think about the job and it's, you know, what you actually do in the job in the middle of a presidential campaign and so that and then i had a conversation with president obama about all of these ideas before president trump was in office so um it it would have come and and it's one of the things i try to argue in the book while i spend some time on president trump i'm also trying to say he is he is both a person to be evaluated but he's also kind of a A figure that you can use to illuminate issues with the office itself not just because he's the president of the moment but because he's a particular kind of president who illuminates a lot of the jobs different aspects
1: We'll we'll talk about Trump a little bit more later definitely but let's let's focus more on uh, on this the larger idea of the book here Uh, and I'm gonna put you on the spot because I just I want to contain you here in one minute what is your theory of the presidency as put forth in this book
2: Well, the theory is that the presidents are asked to do too much, that we put too much on the presidential plate. And then we've also, in addition to increasing the size of the presidential to-do list, we've tied the president's hands um, by uh, the way we talk about the office, the expectations we set, by the fact that we don't allow a president to engage with issues in the way that we would um, if we, you and I, were just having a conversation. And because Part of his partners, the largest and most notable one being Congress, have shrunk from the job that they're supposed to do in making laws in America. And so the job's gotten harder. He's lost a partner, he or she, but it's he in the moment. He's lost a partner. And our expectations have grown uh, while it's gotten harder.
1: So there are so many great anecdotes in this book, which is, you know, kind of uh, a cornerstone of, of your um, of your work is your ability to s- tell a presidential story. Um, and uh, I credit you now for teaching me the origins of the phrase, uh, the buck stops here, which I appreciate. <laughs> um, is, th- is there a favorite story of yours that shows how the presidency has expanded or how difficult the job actually is?
2: The one I start the with is about the Reorganization Act and FDR's effort to try to expand the office to meet the needs and challenges of the Great Depression and we all know that FDR expanded the office and it never shrunk back to its previous size but when he first moved mm-hmm. in even though people were encouraging him to be a dictator um, I mean legitimately you know writing editorials saying mm-hmm. uh, a dictator yeah. if necessary He was having a devil of a time just getting a few aides to work in the White House. He at the at that time, the presidency was so limited that there were no really no aides that the president that worked for the president. They worked for other cabinet agencies, but those agencies didn't really work for the president either. They were their own independent entities and it was all governed and changes were um, were governed by Congress. So his fight to just get a little more help to do his job with Congress was an epic battle that took place over a couple of years. It led to protests in Washington. He targeted members of his own party who weren't helping him out in their primary races. It was a huge battle. Now, the idea that the president couldn't get what he wanted in terms of running his own department, it would be crazy. So that's part of one of the ways to try to show the distance we've traveled. Another story that always comes to my mind, which, um, about the difficulty of the job, is it's 1979, and Zbigniew Brzezinski, the um, Brzezinski, I- I the um, national security Advisor to Jimmy Carter, is in bed and gets a phone call and is told 200 missiles have been launched from Russia. And he only has a few minutes to make a decision to advise the president. And, and so he asked the, the military official calling him uh, to check and make sure this is really happening. They say, yes, it is happening he starts to formulate a response, which is essentially retaliation um, or or, um, to answer the Soviet attack. He doesn't wake his wife because he assumes basically they're all going to be dead soon enough. And why wake her? And as he's about to call the president, he finally finds out that, no, actually, it's not an attack. Uh, The tape for an exercise had mistakenly been put in the computer, and that's why they thought there were Soviet missiles that had been launched. But what that says to me is, it's the, it's sort of the ultimate example of how treacherous the job and the decision making can be in the presidential job uh, at a moment's notice, um, and 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 it can be high stakes in just a matter of minutes.
1: That's an amazing story. I, it was it's just shocking. I'd never heard that before. Um... But there's this other sort of uh, a corollary to that, which is that there's a, a similar story about, um, I think, Kissinger uh, waking up Nixon uh, during uh, when Apollo 13 um, uh, lost communication and th- there's nothing that that the president could do about it right there's no decision to be made it's so banal right. but they, but kissinger felt he had to wake up nixon in order to just say that like that they told the president and and, and i thought that that was an interesting view into the fact that um, sometimes it, it's, it's the, the presidency doesn't demand that you make a decision. It just demands that you be present right. and that can be taxing as well. Right. Well,
2: that's exactly, that's a great example. April of 1970, Apollo 13 goes, you know, uh, is, um, has a fire on the way to the moon. Uh, they wake up Nixon and, you know, as you know, the space race was a proxy for the battle with the Russians. And so there was a kind of, uh, this notion of prestige in the cold war, um, would have been at stake. But no, Nixon couldn't do anything. And then they all plotted about how they could make Nixon look like he was doing even more. And, and this, is, this is part of the, the duties that have grown in the presidency, is there's a lot of the theater of the office that aides, for one reason or another, think is important. And, you know, it tends to fill up a person's day if they're constantly being whipsawed by the kind of theatrical aspects of the job. And, and there was a lot of that during the Cold War.
1: All right, we'll be back with more from John Dickerson in just a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. Alaska Airlines is taking care to the next level with a renewed commitment to providing a higher standard of cleanliness and safety. From airport check-in to boarding, from takeoff to landing, next level care involves COVID-19 preparedness plans and procedures developed with the FAA and CDC. This includes electrostatic disinfectant sprayers and onboard filters that remove 99.95% of airborne particles. Alaska is also putting proper social distancing procedures in place, requiring masks of employees and guests, providing sanitizing stations and wipes, reconfiguring seating arrangements, limiting in-flight services, and more. When you decide it's time to fly, Alaska is prepared to take your travels to the next level. Learn more at alaskaair.com slash nextlevelcare. So, in addition to being history of the presidency, uh, this is also a history of crisis in America, because, you know, usually expansion follows crisis, right? Um, And as this book was in its final stages of publication, three more major crises surfaced, you know, a pandemic, an economic collapse, and major civil unrest. How have these events impacted your thinking around the presidency?
2: When the pandemic hit, after it was closed, I thought, "Oh, wow! You know, this has happened after the book, and that was just one of three things. And now, and now we've got three. Um, and I think the crisis, the potential crisis in voting, um, and and just the smooth process of the peaceful transfer of power could be a fourth challenge. It's certainly a challenge on the horizon." But how has this affected my thinking? Well, you know, one of the big arguments I make in the book is that I went out and did all these interviews and thought about the office and tried to figure out what its basic requirements were. And in talking to CEOs and people who'd worked in White Houses and former presidents and and asking them all the the first question, which was, if you were hiring a person to be president, what skill would you look for? So many of them started with the ability to manage and build a team. And that's kind of weird because we don't talk about that very much and also when you ask a question what do you look for in a president people usually default to character or temperament or these kind of gooey things but really almost all of them settled on this idea of team building why is that important the presidency isn't a one-person job it's an organization and the organization has to run smoothly and you can't just add water you've got to like you've got to find the right people figure out what the jobs are put the right people in the right jobs, and then tend to them. And I started to spend some time with the literature in business on team building, which has mushroomed since about the 1970s, when the the businesses basically changed from being uh, structures in which you basically hired from within to ones in which you started to have to go look for people from the outside. And so they developed in the private sector a competency for picking talent. And when they survey CEOs, the CEOs say their number one concern in their business is getting the right kind of talent. So, this is a huge challenge for presidents. And there are all kinds of ways, and this goes back to why it's the hardest job in the world, all kinds of things that hamstring a president to be able to pick a good team. They're not given enough time. Uh, their top people have to be confirmed by the Senate, which is often quite bulky. You're stuck trying to pay off a bunch of political debts, which means you end up having people who are politically important, but maybe not super competent. So if you take the one thing that's most important and you look at the shackles and constraints on your ability to do it well, it's a microcosm of the larger challenges in the job. Hmm. And and
1: I believe that it was John Kennedy who said that he spent so much time uh, developing people who could help him win the presidency that he had no time to actually develop relationships with the people who could actually help him president,
2: Exa- right? Exactly. Exactly. And so going back to your previous question, which is how do these three things affect? I mean, the reason you want to have a good team in place is to see the threat coming and and have people mm-hmm. you've empowered to be able to come to you and say, Mr. President, stop paying attention to whatever you're paying attention to. This is a big deal. People who can say to you, you know, um, this may be a short term political hit, but it's gonna be a big long term problem if we don't buckle down and deal with this. So and and certainly with race relations in America, um, you know, one of the most important things about diversity is to have people in the room when decisions are being made who can see things and who have a worldview that you don't have. There would have been a different response to the agony we see in the streets of America right now if there was a greater diversity in the team that Donald Trump has surrounding him. And that's And that's also true about decision making. It's not just about um race racial issues the people who've studied complex organizations there is a a view and studies have shown this that the more diverse your management team and decision-making team the better your your system is the complex organizations run better when you have just diverse minds involved because they tend to see problems before they arise So, uh,
1: so now I want to talk about Trump a little bit more. You know, he's an interesting character in this book. He's positioned as a kind of foil to a system that the book argues is out of hand. I mean, maybe foil isn't the right word, but he certainly is in opposition to, to this thing that you're talking about that has grown too large and unwieldy and complex. Um, of course, you're also really critical of the president in particular with Charlottesville and his response to hurric- hurricane, Maria, um, But is there possibly some good that comes out of the Trump presidency in terms of the the role of the president?
2: I think so. I mean, the hardest thing um, to get this right, and I don't know that I did, when I started working on the Atlantic cover story that was the kind of kernel at the heart of this book, we always wrestled with this challenge which is one how to assess this president this current president who but also um how to stay away from making it seem like that's all we were talking about because one of the problems and challenges with the job is it's become such a celebrity office that we mm-hmm. tend to think of the office by whichever the current occupant is and that's not that shouldn't work we're trying to figure out what the standards are of the office and so donald trump in a lot of way in a lot of ways illuminates some central things about the presidency that a lot of it is passed on by custom Uh, not written down anywhere. And we have a tradition of keeping those customs, and presidents have a a stewardship tradition that they feel passes those customs from one generation to the next. um, As a part of keeping the American story going, we are a country built not upon blood or, or lineage, but upon an idea. And so if the country's going to survive, if that idea is going to survive, you as a president, you as a lawmaker or leader, have to be a steward of those ideas because we have ideas, not bloodlines as the as the uh, basis of our society. And so those ideas that are at the center, Donald Trump has illuminated, challenged and brought into very high relief. Um, and then there's just some nuts and bolts of the presidency that he has um, uh, challenged and and made, you know, uh, in some ways made people have to defend. So we see what it looks like now when you don't have a president who's terribly empathetic um Hmm. and uh, and so you 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 can make a choice about whether the pastoral role of the president is important or not it turns out i think in my view based on the work i've done and what i've seen in the response to george floyd's death is the, the pastoral role is important in the moment but it also has something at its center that's more broadly important which is the empathy um reflex that a president needs that that James Wilson puts at the heart of his definition of character, the idea of having empathy. And that's that's about much more than just being able to respond in the moment. That's about knowing how to be president of an entire country and not just president of your political base.
1: Hmm. I wonder if we are at a point that's very dangerous here, where certainly the way that President Trump has responded to this kind of handful of crises uh, that we're in the middle of right now has uh, I mean his numbers are down people seem to understand that he's um, that that he's he's failing in some way or believe that he's failing in some way and so uh, this formula this idea that we could learn from his presidency has um, a look to it right now that maybe it's a cautionary tale but we don't know what's going to come down the pike in the next few months We could end up with a second term uh, for President Trump. And I wonder if if that happened, would that solidify his approach to the presidency? And would that actually, in a way, institutionalize some of these approaches um, that feel uh, abnormal?
2: Well, it could. Um, I think the questions for me in that case would be um, two things. One, would somebody have the pain threshold that he has? Hmm. He's quite sensitive about a lot of things, obviously but he also has a very high pain threshold. And so when he doesn't do something and he gets criticized for it, sometimes he'll maintain his position with even more fortitude. That's hard to sustain. Normally what happens is a president bungles his advisors and the smart people and the elites and the pundits and all that say, Oh boy, you've really messed up. And then they correct course. Um, he doesn't Mm -hmm. correct course. That's very hard, and people who usually come up through politics do so by knowing how to elegantly correct course. He didn't come up through politics. You'd have to have somebody who had his set of attributes who could sustain running the presidency the way he has. Now, the secondary view would be that he would, if he stays in office for another four more years, that he would have created a market. Now, there are two kinds of markets he can create. One market would be a a market that has an appetite for just what he's selling. And so somebody else who can sell the same stuff would have a a market ready for their goods. The other market he could create is a market for anything but the the way the president is behaving. And we've seen that in the presidencies the last few times. You have this, you know, after Bill Clinton, George W. Bush said that he would, um, restore honor and dignity to the Oval Office. So there was a kind of a character question coming. Um, after George Bush, Barack Obama was seen as more cerebral, cooler, not going to go rush America into a war. Then after the cerebral and cool Obama, you have the much more impulsive, um, idiosyncratic Donald Trump. So to the extent that that presidencies kind of go back and forth, you could imagine that, that, um, that Donald Trump would create kind of a market for his opposite. Hmm.
1: So, let's talk about Joe Biden. Um, you argue in the book that there are particular attributes that we should be looking for in a leader, um attributes that are not exactly those rewarded by winning a
2: campaign, right? Does Biden possess those attributes? he pr- He possesses some of them. He <laughs> and I realize <laughs> I only realized this until after I uh, published the book, but i I came up with seventeen attributes, which is, you know, obviously, no human being could could achieve uh, all seventeen. And what I was really trying to do is, again, is I was trying to look at the, the basics of the office and where they come from. And, and my, one of my points was to think differently about the presidency, which is what the whole hope of the book is, um, was, to, was to not think about things in binary terms. So when we think about the political instinct for a candidate, for example, sometimes people look at a candidate and they'll say, oh, he's too political. He cares too much about politics, about his political fortunes, about the kind of inside dirty game of politics. Well, you have to engage in that game to be president. So it's like saying we're gonna elect somebody to be the national swimming champion, but we don't like that they get wet. Um, Hmm. So we have to think about it on a a continuum. We obviously don't want somebody who is so political that they put their political fortunes above the national interest. You want them to put their political fortunes in the service of the national interest. But if we think of everything in binary fashion, Then we never get to that idea of what politics is really for when it comes to the presidency. So Biden has the political interest. He has the political deal-making skill honed from years in the Senate. People don't like it, but it's the sausage-making that is a part of government and that is a part of getting anything done in a system, particularly where the other party has the majority in the Senate, which might be the case if he's elected. Mitch McConnell mm-hmm. writes about this in his book, which is no, which is no gold star for Joe Biden. Nobody want, Joe Biden's not going to go out there and say, I can work with Mitch McConnell at the moment. Right. But it is, McConnell said it was easier to work with Biden than, than Obama because Biden knew where McConnell's politics began and ended and knew he wouldn't get it, be able to get him to do something that his conference wasn't going to follow along with. I think Biden obviously has a temperament that has been um, tested by his own personal crises and by time in the spotlight. Um, you know, some people, a lot of people, question his foreign policy judgment, um, including mm-hmm. the former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates. So he has a lot of those attributes, um, um, not all of them, but he has a fair number of them that you would that you would want in a president. But as Hugh Hewitt pointed out to me, and he's quite right. If you went down the list of attributes, George W. Bush had a lot of those attributes, and yet uh, he ranks at the lower end of the middle in presidents, um, mostly because of his decisions on the Iraq War. So you can have all the attributes in the world, but if you make a call that turns out to be historically um, a bad one, then your attributes aren't going to have aren't going to have helped you.
1: Hmm. I wonder. This is an impossible question, and I apologize for it. But you are a student of the presidency. You know all of these men who have held the office. Uh, you know what I'm going to ask. Like, if you if you could install somebody from that history right now to get America through this current incredibly difficult moment, who who would you uh, who would you draft?
2: It's a it's it's a great question because even if even if you have an imperfect answer, which is this is what I try to do in the book. You know, it illuminates some of the things to think about. I mean, it's so hard to to get at this question, though, because the political situation right now is so fraught. The contest you have to run to get elected requires you to do certain things that lock you in once you get into office. So you need to be mm-hmm. you you need to be like Prince Hal um, in uh, in Shakespeare, which is, you hang around with Falstaff your whole young life, and then the minute you become king, you you uh, move on from your uh, from from the w- w- how you spent your youth, which is to say, you have to completely swerve once you become president, because the country's challenge right now is, it seems to me, can only be broken if somebody decides to basically drive right through both parties um, and kind of keeps that a secret until they become president. Because you can't get elected Mm. if you promise you're going to do that. So you have to get elected, and then you essentially have to betray your party um, by making deals with the other party. Now, not fully betray your party, but recognize that the larger country has different views of things than the people who control the primaries and the political process in your party. So what would that look like? So let's imagine, and I'm not answering your question because I don't quite know who the president would be who'd be able to do that. I mean, when you look at what Lyndon Johnson did with with civil rights, he made a conscious choice to basically saw off part of his party f- from itself. I mean, this is an amazing mm. thing. Lyndon Johnson, I mean, Robert Caro is wise to have spent his life looking at Lyndon Johnson because he is so complex and so full of blemishes and and ugly parts, and yet on the other hand, he increased the chance for equality for millions and millions of black Americans he used the power of his office to do good and yet he had all these flaws but he consciously chose to as he said lose the south for his party for a generation in order to advance the case of rights for black americans who had been denied them by jim crow that's amazing and so Hmm. let's go back to donald trump imagine donald trump gets into office He has a high threshold for pain he has no particular ideological views he's been jumping back and forth between parties his whole life he doesn't really care about any particular issues other than immigration he could have put together deals with left and right on drug pricing on um infrastructure i think even on immigration um, frankly based just on what donald trump kind of who he is the problem Mm -hmm. and i try to go through this in the book the problem with this theory is that it does—you can't sustain it for very long because, because he does have the views that he does about immigration, and he came to prominence by being the nation's greatest birther, spending five years attacking the legitimacy of Barack Obama. Um, and Black Americans are all too familiar with legitimacy claims on their um, on their hard hard-earned positions in life, and so uh, and women had a similar reaction to him, so. Um, the idea that he could have made quick deals with Democrats is is a little far-fetched given the way he treated two important constituencies within the Democratic Party. It would have been highly painful for Democrats to work with a president who's behaved uh, in the manner that, that Donald Trump has. And of course Republicans right. would have gone crazy uh, if he'd done some of the conciliatory things he would have had to do to make deals with Democrats.
1: But it seems like what you're saying is that you need somebody who has a high pain threshold, who's willing to sort of maybe um, not misrepresent, but sort of show a different side of themselves on the campaign trail and then really flip once they get into the White House. I mean, that seems like a remarkable, I mean, the medal that you would need to have in order to do that. It feels almost like you would need to be as extreme as maybe Trump is and then really like flip. And that just seems that feels like it's out of fiction. I don't even know where that would come from.
2: Right, right. I know. Well, that's why I had to go to Shakespeare because it doesn't. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem to exist yeah. on this on this planet. Now, you crisis could could call, create the preconditions for that to happen. If there were, if there had been a crisis, um, a a president with a penchant for action and seizing the moment might have found a way to. Mm. Um, to do such a thing but you're right it's one of these and we do this a lot in fiction or in television or movies we have presidents behaving in these action hero ways that are just not sustainable in the real in in real life and not
1: really helpful to the presidency itself because it creates an idea that it should be this action hero thing I mean you know it's like you say in the book the presidency is not a Tom Clancy novel
2: yes yes exactly exactly
1: so I've got one more question for you okay and i've been really i don't know kind of fascinated by this poll that came out about the happiness of americans from associated press and the nork center for public affairs research mm-hmm. and it showed that americans are as unhappy as they have been in almost 50 years I think 1972 and much of the reporting that's followed this has really put the onus on president trump and it got me to thinking while reading your book that I wonder, in addition to all the other duties that fall to the office, is the president responsible for the happiness of Americans as well?
2: It's a good question. Um, I don't know if he's responsible for the happiness. hes I think he's responsible for not adding to the unhappiness. I think so. Life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness is, you know, in the in the in the source code of the country. But, that, but the mm-hmm. source code of the country hopefully is the president and Congress set up the conditions so everybody can pursue happiness on their own. But to the extent that the president um, finds political advantage in exacerbating the divisions in the country and keeping people on edge and using, the, using sporting events and places that are usually a refuge from the jaggedness of public life, as a way to increase his stature in in politics, he's adding to the potential unhappiness, creating conflict, creating division, not so not keeping unity. When there is a moment of crisis, if he is doing things that don't add to people's sense of calm, if he's keeping everything on the uh, off axis, that's adding to people's unhappiness. So I don't think. I think a president's job is to basically set the conditions and get the heck out of the way, and to strive to reduce unhappiness, to reduce unfairness, to reduce prejudice, to reduce bias, to cr- uh, increase opportunity, and opportunity doesn't mean happiness, it just means a chance, uh, and hopefully you'll fill it with your own you know, uh, productive labor and passion and meaning, and that will give you happiness. So that's a long answer. It's quite a good question though. But I think I'm I think by the end of all that rambling, I think I still feel that that it's basically the job to reduce unhappiness and not add to unhappiness. But to get the actual happy part, that's um that's on us. Right.
1: Okay, that's John Dickerson. His new book The Hardest Job in the World: The American Presidency is out now. Thanks so much John for visiting Crosscut Talks.
2: Thank you, Mark. I really enjoyed it. And now I'm
1: going to take a minute and ask for your help. All of the journalism created by the Crosscut Newsroom, including this podcast, is free, but it does have very real costs. As a nonprofit news source, we count on support from our readers, viewers, and listeners like you to continue producing the stories and conversations that keep you informed and engaged with your community. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com donate. Okay, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm speaking now with Knut Berger. Crosscut readers and KCTS 9 viewers throughout the Pacific Northwest might know Canute as Mossback, the resident historian here. His accounts of the region's past often add a bit of needed context to current events. This past week, Canute penned a column that is resonant for one Seattle resident in particular, Mayor Jenny Durkin. The first line of that column reads, Being the mayor of Seattle can suck. Knut, what inspired you to write this column? We're in difficult times
0: uh, for a mayor, uh, and the mayor's job is not easy. It's a very insecure position. Uh, Seattleites tend to change mayor kind of like we change socks with great frequency, particularly in recent years. So I've been curious with calls for recall, impeachment, resignation. I just am curious about what the experience has been of other mayors.
1: In the column, you list uh, a number of examples of mayors from the past. What are some of the more remarkable and short tenures that you found?
0: There was a mayor, William Wood. He was mayor when they discovered gold in the Yukon. And he was in San Francisco. He sent a letter of resignation and headed right to the gold fields. <laughs> so he saw you know, a better opportunity. Um, Ole Hansen, who was mayor uh, in 1918, uh, lasted only a year, and he had a very full plate uh, of issues to deal with. We've also had mayors who, uh, you know, served a good part of their terms, but for various reasons, um, either resigned. uh, We've had mayors die in office, uh, uh, John Doerr, for example, um, or mayors who've resigned in scandal like Ed Murray.
1: Right. I mean, this isn't ancient history, I mean, our our last four mayors have all been one term or less?
0: Elected mayors of the last four, three lost re-election and of course one resigned. So we've had a lot of turnover. Uh, some of those are one term mayors, uh, others like Greg Nichols served two terms, ran for a third and he lost uh, his bid for re-election.
1: So uh, you mentioned Ole Hansen, who was the mayor 1918 through 1919, a very short term. Um, You say that he was facing something similar to what Jenny Durkin is facing right now. Can you tell us a little bit about what life was like in Oli Hansen's Seattle?
0: Sure. Uh, In 1918, which is when Oli Hansen won election, he was a local real estate developer. He wasn't new to politics, but he was uh, new to Seattle politics. Um, And it was seen as kind of an independent, fresh-faced guy. The city was facing... uh, a whole lot of stuff. The biggest thing was World War I was underway. The United States was in World War I. Seattle, people might not realize this, was a huge supplier of ships and materiel and soldiers and sailors. This was a huge, huge central point. So the city was growing, it was booming, all to support the war effort. And there were a lot of social problems that came along with that. There was a huge venereal disease epidemic. Uh, enforcing prohibition, which was in place uh, in Washington at that time, was difficult. So there was crime. There was a lot of labor unrest as well. And uh, so Ole Hansen came into a difficult situation, and then it was made more difficult by the fall of 1918 when the Spanish flu pandemic hit Seattle. And so suddenly he was having to deal with uh, you know a health crisis that was unprecedented, and uh, he had to do things in an unprecedented way. That was then followed in February of 1919, which was kind of before the epidemic had truly ebbed, with a Seattle general strike. And it was the first general strike in the United States. 60,000 workers stayed home from work for the better part of a week. Hmm. Um, and so here was a rookie mayor dealing with uh, a whole sequence of difficult situations uh, in 1918-1919.
1: What was Hansen's approach to the mayorship? What did he think needed to be done to really move Seattle through this difficult time?
0: Hansen viewed himself as a pragmatist who was not owned by anyone and by anyone he really referred to two major forces in Seattle which are still major forces today. One was organized labor, and one was the Chamber of Commerce. Hmm. He was very business sympathetic, given his background in real estate and development. But at the same time, he did not want to be beholden to anyone. So he, he gave good speeches. He was also pro-labor, but he really was suspicious of labor's most radical elements. And so he saw himself as a, a kind of a barricade that the Bolshevik, red IWW types would not be able to get
1: across. So how does history view Mayor Hansen?
0: Well, it's, it's quite interesting. It depends sort of a, what your ideological bent is. The Seattle general strike was It was peaceful. No one was killed. No one was injured. It came off. It made its point. Hansen took credit for that. He had uh, heavily armed the Seattle police. He deputized thousands of Seattleites and armed them in case uh, this was a Russian-style revolution. Hmm. And he began to really posture. He he cracked down on the IWW offices, making arrests. And he basically, you know, pitched it as I saved America from this red revolution. And people in Seattle didn't really buy that because they knew the IWW didn't call for the strike, and a very tiny percentage of the uh, strikers even belonged to the IWW. But nationally, he became famous as a, a fifteen minutes of fame celebrity. He traveled all over the country talking about Bolshevism versus Americanism, and in fact, that's the name of his uh, memoir: is Americanism versus Bolshevism. He became a, you know, a a celebrity, a kind of Joe the Plumber of 1919. He thought about running for president in 1920. So he got a lot of uh, boost out of that. But locally, the view was largely different. And uh, I came across one quote, you know, that said, well, Ole Hanson was just like every other Seattle mayor. They talked a good game, but they didn't (laughs) didn't accomplish anything. That was from a police officer, right? Yeah, it was actually yeah, a police official oh. writing in a police publication some years after, and that's quoted in a very good memoir about the Seattle General Strike. I think I think is you know he was viewed locally with uh, as as a kind of grandstander as somebody who kind of was out for himself. He ended up quitting in uh, the summer of nineteen nineteen, so he he was mayor for just a little over a year, hmm. and he moved to California and. And started San Clemente was one of his uh, developments. But yeah, so he blew town and uh, Seattle proceeded to head through the 1920s into the Depression. And Hansen barely mentions the pandemic in his memoirs, if at all. I mean, it was as if that was, you know, a minor thing. It was really the war and labor unrest that occupied most of his time.
1: So what's the lesson here for, for Durkin and then for the rest of us as well?
0: Well, it's interesting because, you know, Seattle is, is pretty fickle about its mayors. You have these, these sort of warring factions that have been doing battles, certainly since the turn of the century, which is the sort of socialist and progressive left versus the business community. It's still a dynamic we're dealing with. And it's very difficult for a mayor to balance those two things. And the other dynamic, which I talked to uh, former mayor Mike McGinn about, and it's one of the things Hansen talks about is that the Chamber of Commerce, the business interests are so strong that most mayors can't resist coming down on the side of the business community that ultimately cities are business entities. they exist because of commerce, and that the mayorship is kind of an extension of that. And I know McGinn was an you know came from an activist background, and this, I think was a real revelation for him is the default power of those constituencies. And so I think the thing here is that it's a very difficult balancing act. And I think in some ways you can argue that Durkin is facing the worst (laughs) buffet of problems that any mayor has
1: faced since Ole Hansen. All right. So that's Knut Berger. His column on how much it sucks to be mayor of Seattle is at crosscut.com right now. Knut, thanks so much for coming on the show.
0: Oh, thank you, Mark.
1: And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Knut and to John Dickerson for joining me. This episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com slash talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.